The first in the nation test of the 2024 presidential campaign runs through America's heartland, home of the Iowa caucus. Today, we hear from Kathy Abradovich, editor-in-chief of the Iowa Capitol Dispatch, who's covered Iowa politics and government for three decades. Obradovich, formerly the lead editor of the Iowa Poll, discusses what's in play and how the state could change everything in their race for president. Iowa may be cold this time of year, but its politics are red hot. From Ballard Studios in Washington, D.C., it's 13th and Park. We give you information, not a panic attack. I mean, look what's going on. I mean, my God, this was it. My kids were gonna die. That time is gone forever. This is the biggest story in America. We weren't prepared for this. Don't you want to speak truth to power? Toughest thing I ever had to do. Kathy, great to have you on the show. The first thing I'd like to ask this time of year in Iowa, how's the weather? <laughs> well, it's cold, but dry, but you know, anything can happen. And the weather is absolutely the right question to ask about caucus turnout. Right. Uh, there's snow in the forecast, so we'll see what happens. Well, obviously things are getting hot and heavy. We're very close to the first test in the nation of where this presidential campaign, which is already won for the books, might be headed. Let's start with this. Governor Kim Reynolds, popular governor of Iowa, pretty shockingly for a lot of people, came out and endorsed Ron DeSantis for president. There was a poll that came out, Kathy, recently suggesting that over 60 percent said it didn't really matter, and 22% said they were less likely to vote for Ron DeSantis because of that. And you wrote recently, quote, it's a huge political risk for Reynolds, but an even bigger hazard for the future of the Iowa Republican caucuses. What did you mean by that? Typically, Iowa governors remain neutral in the caucuses. And the reason is to make sure to give every candidate a level playing field to participate in Iowa. There have been exceptions, or at least one notable exception. Former Governor Terry Branstad did endorse Bob Dole. um, And it was pretty obvious when he did it that Bob Dole was going to win. Okay, Kim Reynolds got out on a, a much bigger limb here by endorsing Ron DeSantis when he is pulling in double digits and you know, 40 points behind Donald Trump. So, you know, chances that he is going to win the caucuses, pretty slim. Um, And when, uh, if Donald Trump becomes the nominee, um, and, you know, again, ahead of the Republican Party, and then if he gets to the White House, he may very well decide that he doesn't want to reward the Iowa caucuses, Mm -hmm. even if he wins the Iowa caucuses. You know, that kind of thing um, is dangerous. As the Democrats know in Iowa, Joe Biden came in fourth in the Iowa caucuses in 2020. And guess what? The Iowa caucuses are no longer first in the nation. So it is dangerous uh, for the caucuses. And, you know, the possibility that Donald Trump is more popular than Kim Reynolds right now uh, makes it a little bit uh, politically hazardous for her as well. So I I love the expression doing the full Grassley, and, and as Vivek Ramaswamy would say, the double Grassley, the full Grassley meaning hitting all 99 counties as a campaigner. That's something Ron DeSantis has already, I think, checked the box on. I don't know if Vivek has double Grassley yet or not. We're talking, of course, about the eight-term U.S. Senator Chuck Grassley. How important, Kathy, is barnstorming this state these days? It's actually really important um, because of the nature of the caucuses. You want uh, to attract people who are willing to get their butts off their couch 
on a Monday night and go out in the cold and caucus in person for if you're the candidate to, you know, to caucus for you. And so, you know, while so you can do a lot with social media, um, people can't caucus on their phones. And so what this barnstorming tour does is, you know, you get people on your list who are actually committed, who are actually going to turn out to caucus and then try to persuade them to bring their friends and family along as well. So because the caucuses are still a very grassroots oriented contest, that's why they 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 come in person. They uh, it, The old joke was that people won't caucus for anyone that they hadn't met in person, you know, multiple times. So this gives them an opportunity to have that personal touch, to ask people in person to caucus for them and hopefully motivate them to go out on a cold winter night. Are these fun events to be a part of as a caucus goer? What's it like? So caucuses, um, I mean, in some ways are kind of a chore because you you have to show up, you wait in line to check in, uh, you wait in a room, which may be crowded for everybody else to get checked in. And then, you, you know, you listen to some speeches and then uh, you check a box and then people who want to will wait around for the results. So this could be an hour or even even longer, this this event. Now, um, it's not the same kind of um, rodeo as uh, you're used to seeing with the Democrats who would, you know, <laughs> stand in a corner for their candidate and then, you know, do si and swing your partner and, you know, maybe end up in somebody else's corner. That's a little bit more active and a little bit, you know, I, I would argue maybe a little bit more fun to watch at least. But, you know, people have a chance to to meet their neighbors to talk to them about the campaign. Um, and that part of it, that social part of it is fun, but it's also part of building the party. So let me ask you about polls. We'd like to disdain polls, but yet we're mesmerized by them. Obviously, the polls in Iowa have been fairly one-sided up to this point. Uh, the former president, Donald Trump, in the latest uh, read in the Iowa poll was up 32 points. And maybe more importantly, 70% uh, of Trump voters said they were not going to change their mind. And I think over 70 percent of first time caucus goers said they were pro-Trump. Despite those numbers, you have the contenders who don't want to believe in them. And let me cue this clip from Vivek Ramaswamy. You said it better than I could. And we'll come right back to you for your reaction. I think the polls are dead off is the answer. So I'm here in Iowa. I have done more events than any of the other candidates. Actually, all of the other candidates combined. And what we're seeing, even the event that I just came out of right now, is that many of our supporters, actually most of our supporters, are first-time caucus goers, people who have never been to a caucus, many of whom are not polled, actually none of whom have been polled. So I think we're gonna sh deliver a major shock on January 15th. I would venture to say, Kathy, the shock may be that Vivek is not gonna do much better than he already is, but where are the goalposts? Like, you know it's always an expectations game. So what does Trump and Haley and DeSantis and Vivek Ramaswamy, what do they have to do to, you might say, survive Iowa and move forward? Yeah, so it, it, you're definitely talking about two different things here. The poll results, first of all, are important. If you talk to Republican voters in Iowa, um, you can talk to them about all the issues you want immigration or the economy or whatever. But when it comes right down to it, what they're really looking for is someone that they think can beat Joe Biden. Secondly, it is difficult to poll in a caucus. You know, you've got a pretty small universe of people. And that there are polls that only 
poll people who are currently registered as Republican, if you're polling the Republican caucus. So you can miss um, people who have never caucused before, who maybe aren't even registered to vote because you can register on caucus night. Uh, now, there are some very good polls. Um, just a shout out to my former employer's poll, the Duane Registers Iowa poll. And they do a very good job of trying to find people who won't, won't show up on other lists who are thinking about caucusing but, or planning to caucus, but um, haven't done it before. So so, so I think that they some of those polls do a good job there. Um, it, you know, having said that, uh, for Vivek Ramaswamy to come back from pulling in single digits to winning the Iowa caucuses would take more than a miracle at this point, I think. Um, but then going to your question about the expectations game right. now, uh, people who don't win the caucuses can kind of win the caucuses in terms of getting a boost into other states. And you now you look at, for example, uh, Nikki Haley, who performed certainly better. She has uh, improved her poll numbers over the year. She's still running neck and neck with Ron DeSantis. If she could beat him decisively, outperform her poll numbers, and that gives her a boost going into uh, the New Hampshire primary and then South Carolina, her home state, uh, that could very well read like a win in the Iowa caucuses, even if she comes in a fairly distant second to uh, Donald Trump. I mean, that's why that's kind of why the caucuses are exciting. You know, you 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 know that people you know who are like you might know who's likely to win, but you don't necessarily know who gets the most benefit. So obviously, if you look at the Iowa poll, I think since 1984, I read, if someone was up double digits over the second place candidate, that candidate prevailed each and every time. But you also have obviously a history, Kathy, of Republican caucus winners who have not fared so well after the win, including Rick Santorum, Mike Huckabee, and of course, more recently, Ted Cruz. So what is the message from all of that? Since Iowa is a very unique part of the country, it's in the heart of the heartland, is there a message for the rest of the country that maybe should prevail beyond the state's caucuses themselves? I think what people need to understand about the caucuses is we don't pick the winners typically mm. um, in the Iowa caucuses. And and how unfair would it be if the first state in the nation to uh, cast a ballot always picked the winner? That would be, that would be, seem really undemocratic to me. Um, but what Iowa does well is kind of winnow down the field. And mm. Uh, just to use an agricultural term that we always like to use here. And uh, by winnowing down the field, I mean, you know, you're you are weeding out the weakest candidates. And a lot of times um, what Iowa does is not um, necessarily reward the front runner, but help people learn what, who is the most viable challenger to the likely front runner. So right. so in the Iowa caucuses, you know, Donald Trump, uh, we know he's the front runner. Um, but who is going to be the most viable challenger um, going forward? And, it, you know, is it going to be Ron DeSantis? Is it going to be Nikki Haley? Is it going to be somebody else? So any fun stories from the trail so far, Kathy? I mean, you've been doing this for decades. You've seen them come and go, as they say. Anything this particular cycle that was kind of unexpected? I predicted uh, that uh, Kim Reynolds would not endorse <laughs> a candidate, <laughs> let alone uh, Ron DeSantis. So when I go out and talk to people, the number one thing they want to talk about right now is the Donald Trump ad that aired uh, and is still airing after Kim Reynolds endorsed uh, Ron DeSantis. On behalf of all Iowans, I want to say thank you. Thank 
for cutting taxes for hard-working Iowans. Our farmers, thank you. Iowans, thank you. And we are grateful. Promises made, promises kept. The Midwest has a partner in the White House with President Donald Trump. A leader, a fighter, a president who puts America and Americans first. I'm Donald J. Trump, and I approve this message. And that ad features clip after clip after clip of, of Kim Reynolds lauding in the most you know extravagant terms what a great president uh, Donald Trump is and how great he is for Iowa and how great he is for Iowa farmers. And that ad has just run over and over and over in Iowa. And so people are, you know, going back to to her level of popularity. People are seeing that over and over again. And some some of them probably are a little confused by now about who she actually endorsed, um, which I'm sure was the was the idea behind the ad. As a longtime ad maker, I applaud that. Right, where in 30 seconds you can overwhelm maybe 30 months of campaigning. Let me ask you, obviously, there is always a lot of talk in Iowa in particular about the power of the evangelical vote in the Republican caucus. Uh, is that still alive and well? And and how does that bode well or not for certain contenders? The evangelical vote has always been important in the caucuses, in part because these folks are really committed and they actually will get out and caucus and they actually will work for a candidate. In the past, we've had um, evangelical leaders like Bob Vanderplatz, for example. He heads a, an organization called the Family Leader here in Iowa. He's been able to make influential endorsements in the past. This time, he endorsed Ron DeSantis also and has been pretty anti-Trump. However, evangelicals, if you look at the polls, um, people who say they're born again or however they ask the question, are are lining up for Donald Trump in you know fairly equal numbers to the rest of the Republican pop population. And, and the conclusion I've drawn from that is that the evangelical vote is like the the rest of the Republican Party. They're looking for somebody that they think can win. So you recently wrote that candidates have become shyer and less willing to sit down for one-on-one -on -one interviews. Kathy, how does this bode well or not? for political journalism all over the country, where the press and media have been a major league part of the conversation of a presidential campaign. I don't support it as a journalist. I don't I don't support candidates not uh, wanting to sit down, with, for example, with editorial boards. So one of my former jobs was uh, opinion editor at the Des Moines Register. And we had a really hard time in the past few cycles getting Republicans to sit for editorial board interviews. I mean, ultimately, it boils down to less uh, opportunities for voters to hear uh, probing questions, uh, to hear that the candidates' answers and not just the superficial answer that they might be able to give in a debate, um, but to have to, you know, answer the follow-up questions, you know, like, why is this your position? And, you know, mm -hmm. what about, you know, this thing that may be happening that counters your, your ideas? Then, you know, how do you explain that? And I just think the fewer opportunities that voters have to hear the more in-depth answers, uh, the less they really are going to understand about what their people that they're voting for are actually going to do when they get into office. So that's why with your coverage, I was reading about this, that you have to almost go into 
candidate forums where the candidates are speaking to a, a group of people like at the Pizza Ranch, I think it's one of the more famous places in Iowa politics, to overhear the conversation and report on the exchange as opposed to it being a one-on-one. Yeah, I mean, we just had a recent situation where Nikki Haley was asked by a voter what uh, she thought was the cause of the Civil War, and she kind of tripped all over her answer. And people complained, well, that was a that question was a Democratic plant. But, you know, we actually got to hear an unscripted answer to that question. And yeah, voters voters can ask uh, on occasion very insightful questions. But what they don't get to do once the candidate has answered is ask a follow up. The candidate's going to answer and move on. And so you get a lot of times you get the scripted soundbite and not much more than that. So here's a process question on caucus night. How does it work? The caucuses meet, results are then generated, that then goes to the state party and the party then reports out. What should viewers expect that night? Yeah, I mean, I think um, typically the Republican caucuses run fairly quickly. You know, people will go in and the the, the party has not told us all the details about how they're going to report out uh, the results this time. We're going to hear about that um, in a few days. But most of the time um, you get the precinct level results, but also um, then they will round them up by county as well. What is the future of the Iowa caucus? I know the Democrats have no longer made it first in the nation. They've now moved to South Carolina this cycle. Are you optimistic that the Iowa caucus will stand the test of time and still be the first and major test of presidential contenders? Every single cycle, uh, the Iowa caucuses have to fight for their life. And as you said, uh, the Democrats, uh, you know, they lost pretty big uh, this last cycle by having the Democratic National Committee reorder the first five states. You know, Iowa decided to move to a mail-in ballot that will be announced on Super Tuesday and not try to buck the party. But New Hampshire is bucking the party. I mean, they are they are going ahead with their primary, an unsanctioned primary, and they will be actually first in the nation. But that comes with consequences. Um, and whether those consequences continue after this cycle or not, it's hard to say. Any big predictions for caucus night? <laughs> Anything, any surprise you're kind of looking for or think may happen? I think what, what we're all looking for is kind of who comes in second. So Nikki Haley and Ron DeSantis are kind of neck and neck. Um, and it seems pretty clear that Donald Trump has it wrapped up in Iowa. So we're all pretty much looking to see who is this going to be the strongest challenger to Donald Trump going forward. And if Nikki Haley, for example, could break out, um, outperform the polling numbers that we've seen so far and leave Ron DeSantis in the dust, for example, that would be a significant win for her, even if she comes in a distant second to Donald Trump. Well, Kathy, I appreciate your time and you've got a lot to cover in the coming days. We really appreciate it. I can say on behalf of the American people, all your coverage through all the years. I think this is going to be your fifth or sixth presidential caucus, right, campaign that you've covered. Something like that. (laughs) All the best. Stay warm. We'll be watching very intently on caucus night, as we will the Weather Channel to see how many people brave the cold to show up. Take care, Kathy. Thanks so much for having me. Remember to subscribe today and hit the bell so you never miss another episode of the show with that trademark opener from Washington, D.C. It's 13th and Park. <laughs>